Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am talking with the wonderful, the great David Edmonds. Uh, David is a philosopher and author of many books, including the bestseller Wittgenstein's Poker. He's a distinguished fellow at Oxford University, and he is also the co-host of the very popular uh, podcast, Philosophy Bites, with the mighty Nigel Warburton. Uh, which has many, many millions of downloads. Uh, It's a fantastic podcast. I suggest you all listen to it. And he is the author of the latest book, Parfit, A Philosopher and His Mission to Save Morality. And that is what we talk about in this conversation. We start by talking about who was Derek Parfit, why he's kind of unknown in some ways for a lot of people. I think he's known in uh, definitely in moral philosophy and maybe in philosophy circles, but uh, for most folks, he's not a household name, so we talk about some of the reasons for that. We talk about some of his early life, of course. We talk about the impact of his family. Um, I think it's his both his parents and both of his grandparents on both sides were all missionaries, Christian missionaries, and the impact that had on his work with morality and, and, use, and him deciding to use a secular morality. We talk about his work with poetry, journalism, photography. We talk about his time in the United States and Oxford. And then we get into some of the themes of Parfit's philosophy, uh, his ideas of personal identity in the self. Uh, we talk about unreasons in persons, utilitarianism. Uh, we always talk about future persons, the non-identity problem, equality on what matters, and uh, the legacy of uh, Parfit. Um, I, I loosely, as I mentioned in the conversation, know about Parfit and his work, and I think I've, I've read um, his uh, previous book, one of his earlier books, uh, a long time ago. And so reading uh, David's book was great because I was able to learn more about him as a person, but then also his philosophy. Uh, David has a really nice writing style. It's very accessible and gets at the crux of many of, of the issues. And um, it was just a fabulous read. I mean, it was parts biography, parts philosophy, and and it was just, again, really accessible and, and just a joy to read. So I cannot recommend the book highly enough. And um, as always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. Also on YouTube, you can subscribe and follow there, share widely. And uh, now I bring you David Edmonds. I'm here with David Edmonds. Uh, David, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very much looking forward to, to talking with you. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So you've written an extraordinary book that has uh, has kind of caught the attention of people. I've, I've I've seen it online, passed around. I've heard people talk about it. So which is which is always wonderful. I think for people to uh, to read read books and to read your book. So I've I've been hearing a lot about the book. So um, I've read it and it's uh, it's fabulous. So I'm I'm excited to talk to you all about uh, Derek Parfit. Um, before before we get into that, why don't you just tell listeners uh, kind of who you are. Uh, kind of your kind of brief uh, background, professionally, whatever, and, and what you're what you're up to now. Gosh, uh, well, uh, what am I? I have a sort of portfolio existence. So I now mainly write philosophy books, and I've got a link with the philosophy department at Oxford University in a centre called <clears throat> the Uhiro Centre for Practical Ethics. I have my own podcast, um, which I do with Nigel Warburton called Philosophy Bites and then 
mm-hmm. a couple of other podcasts called Philosophy 24-7 and Social Science Bites, which focuses us on social science. And then until two years ago, um, I'd had a long career at the BBC as a radio program maker where I was part-time. So I sort of combined all these things at the same time. But I've given up the BBC part of it but kept everything else. Hmm. So, yeah, that's me briefly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's wonderful. You, the the I have listened to uh, many of the episodes that you do with Nigel, and it's a, it's a fantastic podcast. So I'll, I'll plug that for listeners. You all should listen to that as well. It's, it's, it's great. It's great. Um, the book that you have out is called Parfit, A Philosopher and His Mission to Save Morality. And this is on Derek Parfit. So the, the first question I have for you is, who was Derek Parfit? Most people don't know the man and um, maybe know some of his ideas or maybe his influence or whatever. But uh, who who is he and why is he – why is so many people don't know who he is and his work? Well, people don't know about him because – He's a kind of philosopher's secret. Uh, so if you, I think if you're in the world of philosophy, you will know about Derek Parfit. If you're in the world of moral philosophy, writing about ethics, you will definitely know about Derek Parfit. Mm-hmm. He was a philosopher who was working from in, the, in, in philosophy from about uh, the late 1960s, 1970, on, on uh, all the way through that century, and then he died in 2017. Mm. He only wrote two books, but they're very, very big books. One mm-hmm. book is called Reasons and Persons, comes out in 1984, and the other one's called On What Matters, which comes out in three very thick volumes, and mm. two of those are published in 2000 and. 11, I think, and then the, the, the final volume is published just posthumously in 2017. So, um, yeah, he only writes these two books, but they're full of very, very interesting ideas. And people disagree about which is the most important one. I prefer Reasons and Persons, the early book work to the second. But, you know, some people value the second book very highly. He writes on a, we can talk about it later, he writes on a whole range of different issues, but he doesn't give interviews. He's not a public philosopher in the way mm. some people are. He's not interested. I mean, if you invited Derek onto your podcast, you almost certainly would have said no. Uh, in fact, I tried to get him on Philosophy Bites and and failed. Mm. He wasn't interested in writing op-ed articles or, you know, even writing kind of popular accessible books, really. He, he, he wanted to stick to writing sort of rigorous analytic philosophy. And as a, as a result, he's much less known than he might otherwise have been. Mm. Mm. It's just super interesting. I've I've read Reasons and Persons a long time ago. I, I not not enough. I read it once and and not enough to really remember. I remember liking it. Uh, I have not read the more recent one, the big kind of three volume. <laughs> I haven't read I haven't read those. Um, but I remember his his philosophy is obviously very interesting, which is which is uh, which is something we'll we'll talk about ma- major themes. I do want to talk a little bit about about his life because he's an interesting person just uh, his philosophy is very interesting but he, he, as a person he's very interesting so you, you said you're not a very public figure um i want i'm curious so i'll start kind of from the beginning <clears throat> in the beginning of the book you you know kind of start about his life and 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 various sequence of things and um and people should read the book so i won't go over all of it but i, I am curious though about your ideas on this so he he came from a family of missionaries right 
And and I was reading about this in his early life, and I couldn't think how much of that had an impact on what he decided to do for the rest of his life. So he he kind of has this moment where he's very young, where he says, you know, he's not into the religious thing. He's essentially agnostic or atheist very early on. But how, how do you think that there's this idea of he spent time studying moral issues and morality and understanding those things? Do you think that there's anything in the kind of back of the mind about being around a lot of you know religious ideas for his childhood that maybe had a kind of imprint on, yeah, I don't really want to do the religious thing, but I do care about morals because many, I mean, the Christian faith does care about morals and things like that. Do you think there was any kind of imprint there or do you think it's just kind of coincidental? No, no, I think there were a couple of connections. As you say, his mum and dad were missionaries and his both his grandmothers and both his grandfathers were missionaries so you know it was it in a way it was very strange upbringing so he had missionaries on both sides of the family and he was born in china mm. where his mum and dad had gone to be missionary doctors mm. during world war 2 i think the two effects were well firstly um i think he had a kind of missionary zeal mm. which i think it's probably not a coincidence, though. So he he wanted to persuade people that he was right about his philosophy. He was very evangelical mm. about his philosophy. So I think that's one aspect. Um, I think the second is indeed the fact that he was so sort of interested in moral philosophy. And he wanted to put moral philosophy on a secure, secular mm. foundation. Mm. So... He had this view, which I think is right, which is that philosophers had always, uh, up until very recently, viewed the world and viewed ethics through theology, through God. Um, If you didn't believe in God, as he no longer did, he'd given up his belief, I think, age seven, and he was affected, as so many people are, by the kind of problem of evil, the idea that if there was an all-powerful, all-good God, how on earth could there be so much suffering in the world? And that, that didn't make, seem to make any sense to him. So he'd given up his own belief, but um, now he wanted to build up a secular ethics. And he had this view that we were at the very, very beginning of this journey, that, that we'd had you know hundreds, thousands of years thinking about these issues, but only through a theological lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we were we could begin to think about ethics afresh, which might bring us to the same conclusions or different conclusions. But in any case, it didn't. It had to be based on on different arguments and on a different foundation. So I think there was definitely a link there with his missionary background. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got that sense when I was reading about it. I was like, hmm, this is very interesting how, you know, you, you never know how someone's life will be and, and how he, yeah, he does have this kind of zeal for 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 uh, for his his way of trying to, to illustrate what he was trying to say of this kind of, uh, you know, morals in a kind of secular framework. Um, <clears throat> he had his time at Oxford and, um, you know, you talk about his time at Eton as a student and stuff, but his time at Oxford, he was a, a journalist. So there's, there's, I want to bring in two pieces here, I guess. The the piece about while he was at Oxford was there was the journalism aspect. How helpful do you see that for him as a writer? 
Um, and we can talk about his, his approach to writing his books, kind of, you know, trudging along, trying to get them done, but his role as a writer, but also do you think this time had any impact on his, uh, I wouldn't say photojournalism, but I'll say photography, his hobby of, of photography, where did that kind of come in? So this is more of the personal stuff. Um, and how does it kind of relate to what he did kind of professionally or as a day job with, with philosophy? What was this time, I guess, in Oxford with the writing and maybe some of the photography? How did, how did these things kind of form for him as a person? Well, um, the unfortunate answer to that, I think, is that they're in some ways very unrelated okay. to his philosophy. Hmm. So, as you say, he has been to the most famous prep school in England called Eton. Mm-hmm. And from Eton, he's gone on to... Oxford, where he studies history, not not philosophy. Mm. And he's obviously a very, very brilliant person. His tutors are in awe of him. You know, I, I think um, they would very much like him to be a, a, an academic in history. Um, but he's not really sort of emotionally attached to history. But while he's in Oxford, as well as being a very brilliant academic student, he gets involved in a whole bunch of things, including, as you say, journalism. Mm-hmm. And he's quite a fluent writer. Um, at school, he's dabbled in poetry. Um, between school and university, he goes off and works for the New Yorker. And later, when he's at Oxford, he publishes a poem, aged only 19, in the New Yorker, which is a rather kind of extraordinary thing to mm-hmm. uh, accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, not many 19-year-olds get po- poems published in the New Yorker. So he, he had a sort of poetic sensibility and he clearly was able to describe things rather beautifully and he had an extraordinary kind of wide vocabulary and, and, and uh, uh, a sort of range um, uh, and an understanding, I suppose, of rhythm and things like that that, 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 that makes poetry work mm-hmm. and which makes journalism work. Um, but almost none of that, I think, is present in his academic philosophy. So when he starts writing academically, he has a very, very dry style and his books are kind of staccato sentences. He often sort of repeats, I mean, not entirely, but he goes over points because his main aim is just to make the philosophy as transparent and as clear as he possibly can. So all those journalistic flourishes that were present when he was an undergraduate, that poetic sensibility that he clearly seemed to have um, as an undergraduate, that seems to disappear when he's starting writing philosophy. And when he's writing philosophy, he has a very, very distinctive style. So I think if you were to present me with kind of a paragraph or two paragraphs of Derek, even if I couldn't remember what those paragraphs were, were, I think I would be able to spot mm. Derek's writing DNA. It, it's a very, uh, it, 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 his sentences are very, very Derek. Mm-hmm. Um, so photography was your second question. He gets given a camera by his uncle when he's quite young and he starts dabbling in photography. He does a bit when he's at Oxford but that's on a very sort of amateur basis. It's only after university that he takes it up and it becomes an obsession with mm-hmm. 
And as you'll have read in the book, um, he becomes obsessed in particular with three cities. Yeah. Uh, there's the city that he spends his life in, uh, which is Oxford, which uh, I don't know if you've been there, but it is a, a, you know, an unbelievably beautiful city. And anybody who comes to the UK, they should definitely re- uh, visit Oxford and, and, and Cambridge. I mean, there's lots of beautiful cities in, in the UK, but Oxford is spectacular. And Derek, um, it was very convenient for him, of course, because he, he, he was based there. So he, he took lots of photographs of Oxford uh, and a famous building called the Radcliffe Camera, which was viewable from his room. So he, could, he didn't even need to leave his room to take the, some beautiful shots. Um, uh, and then the other two cities he became preoccupied with were what was then called Leningrad, now called St. Petersburg, and Venice. So, I mean, I think he had very good aesthetic judgment because those are three <laughs> spectacular cities. And every year, for many, many years, he would go to both St. Petersburg, Leningrad, and to Venice, and he would get up very, very early um, at sunrise, and he would take photographs of the same buildings – every single year, and then he might return at sunset and take the same buildings again under slightly different lighting conditions. And then he would return to the UK, and this was before you could digitally enhance photos. He would send these photos off to a developer, initially one in Italy, later one in London, and these photographs would come back and forth between Derek and the developer, and he would make these constant demands about how he would want the photographs changed. He had a, he had a kind of a, t- a perfectionist instinct about everything, but it, 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 it's in a way most obvious about his photography. And there were things he didn't like about some of his photographs. For example, there might be a lamppost that he wanted removed. He didn't really like people in his in his photographs. So he would sometimes ask for the people to be removed from his photographs. He was constantly adjusting the colour and changing the kind of oranges and pinks and so on. Um, and it would go back and forth, back and forth. And he, he was on an academic salary. I mean, he was a, a decent salary, but um, he was not massively wealthy, but he would spend thousands of pounds trying to make the perfect photograph. And eventually he gives that up in about the year 2000. And from that moment, he, he, he just concentrates on philosophy. But until then, you know, he's been spending, you know, as I say, every year going back and forth between these these various cities. And this, uh, yeah, I remember reading the book, and it's, it's very fascinating. I mean, what, what, I guess two questions are, what do, you, what do you make of the kind of almost perseverative aspect of, of the pictures every year, same place, all of the changes or the corrections that he wants? What what do you make of that just generally, and and why those three cities? I mean, those three cities. I'm, I'm, I haven't been to either of them uh, actually, but I'm sure they're very beautiful. But why those, or why not different cities every year? I mean, what do you what do you make of this? I guess in terms of his his uh, his personality or his makeup or what was going on in his head. He gave an interview to the New Yorker when on what matters the second book comes out. Uh, And there's a big profile of him in The New Yorker. And there's a nice quote in there, I think, where he says something like, um, when I find something, he he doesn't put it in these these terms, but the the message is, when I find something I like, 
I'm very happy to sort of <laughs> repeating that pleasure, as it were. And I don't need a lot of variety. Hmm. Um, I'm, 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 if, if, if I've discovered things that bring me joy, that's enough. So he could listen to the same pieces of music or watch the same movie over and over again. And again, he found these cities. He loved these cities. He loved these particular buildings. I mean, I, I think some of it was was entirely arbitrary. So he'd obviously he'd visited Rome. He'd visited Florence. Rome and Florence are very, very beautiful. I mean, I happen to believe that that you know Venice is, is is even more beautiful than those two places. But you know, equally, there are lots of other European cities that are very beautiful, like Prague. Uh, he he wasn't interested in photographing Prague. So I think it 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 speaks to his um, ability to sort of identify what he likes and then kind of stick to it. And that was a pattern, not just in photography, but in other aspects of his life as well. Hmm. It's, it's so interesting. It's very, very interesting. So you, you talk about he has spent a lot of time in the U.S. and he was influenced by many people, including Rawls, um, and kind of pushing him out of the history kind of uh, avenue of things and more into philosophy. I guess... You know, he 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 spent time here, uh, here in the U.S. where where I'm at. Um, how do you think that was a an influence? He spends time here in the U.S. He's spending time in Oxford. What what do you? I don't know if there's other people that have have done that. Usually, people will come here and they they stay here, or you know. But it seemed like there was a, a healthy amount of visiting across the pond um, and talking to different thinkers over here. How how much of an impact, if any, do you think that had on on him both? Um, and the people he were he was influenced by here, and you know the amount of travel he did around the United States as well. How, how much of that do you think was was uh, influential? Oh, it had a lot of influence. I mean, uh, I think he sort of regarded New York in particular as a, a sort of second home. I mean, I think he loved New York. He'd he'd been there, as I say, working for the New Yorker in his year off. He later after his first degree, got something called a Harkness Fellowship, which was a two-year kind of study uh, in the United States. So he spent two years in the States at Columbia and then at Harvard. And then from quite a young age, once he'd become an academic, he was spending time almost every year in America. And, and he went to lots of different places, Princeton and um Rice University, and he he went to Denver, um, and he kind of lectured in various places. But then after a period, he um, had this kind of complex pattern of visiting uh, NYU, Harvard, and Rutgers. And those were three universities that in this kind of strange schedule he would he would go to, I think he would go to, you know, two a year um, uh, in, a, in a kind of pattern, so that he would go to two different ones each year. Um, I mean, it had a very direct influence in the sense that had he not had that Harkness Fellowship after Oxford, he may never have come across philosophers because he was allowed to sort of do what he wanted when he went to the States and he started attending philosophy lectures. And that was where he sort of fell in love with philosophy and decided that philosophy was for him. So it was completely um, kind of fundamental to his future life that his his time in America. But then subsequently, um, it was important to him 
Well, I mean, there was, there was, it was financially important to him because he, it was another source of income for him. But more importantly, I think, uh, many of his closest friends were American philosophers. And, I mean, Oxford's an amazing place to, to be a philosopher because it has an enormous number. I, I think there must be more philosophers in Oxford. This is almost certainly true than any other university in America or in the UK. Um, because Oxford has you know, something like 38, 39 colleges or something like that. Each college has at least two philosophers. Some have more. So I, I think there were 150 professional philosophers in, in Oxford. So if you're going to be a philosopher, Oxford's a great place to do it. But he had these close collaborations, um, close friendships with very important philosophers in America like Tom Nagel, like Tim Scanlon. He had a, it was, it was a close friend to a philosopher called Larry Temkin. Um, so those relationships um, were, I think, yeah, very, very important to him. Shelley Kagan was another uh, 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 American philosopher who was, was important to his work. Mm. Um, so I think for all those reasons, the States was, yeah, uh, mm. it mattered a great deal to him. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, I mean, when when you have so many philosophers in Oxford and and he's but he's spending time here in in the U.S., it's it's, it's a super interesting experience to have. Again, not only you know in terms of thinking, but also in terms of the exposure to different types of cultures and and I, I found that really how he kept doing that throughout his life very very yeah. interesting. So, so there's one thing I didn't know when I was started out on the book, and I think very few people knew. In fact. I'm not sure anybody I know knew about this, but when he went to Harvard, um, he studied under John Rawls. You mentioned John Rawls. Um, and he was thinking of doing a PhD with Rawls. And it was a rule of the Harkness Fellowship that after you'd been in America for two years, you had to leave. And when you signed on to this fellowship, it was part of the deal that you had to leave. And then you were allowed to return up to America after I don't know what period of time, but um, you couldn't stay after those two years. And Derek, and this may be something to do with his old Etonian background, there's a history of Derek thinking that the rules don't apply to him. And so he would um, write to different institutions and say, I know there's this rule, but I wonder if you can... Um, for me, sort of make this exception. And he tried to do the same with the Hartness Fellowship. So he said John Rawls had asked him to do a PhD and he could have studied under Rawls. And he writes to the Hartness Fellowship team and says, you know, I've got this opportunity. I know I'm supposed to leave after two years, but can you make an exception for me? And very unusually, because um, it almost always worked, they said, no, you've got to go. So he left the States and went to Oxford to do a to start a philosophy degree, which he never completed. He never got a single philosophy degree. His only qualification was one degree in history. Mm. Um, so, but he leaves America. But it's interesting to speculate how Derek's life and how political theory would be different had mm. Derek stayed at Harvard, because then he would have been working with John Rawls, John Rawls, this was in um, the mid-1960s. John Rawls was working on his, um, his, his great 
work, A Theory of Justice, which comes out in 1971 and widely regarded as the most important work in political theory post-World War II. Derek wasn't all that keen on that book. And I think the book might have emerged in a very different form had Derek been studying under John Rawls. So, mm. you know, if, if, we, if we're allowed counterfactual history, mm-hmm. that's an interesting avenue to pursue. Yeah, I mean, man, I mean, who who can say, right? I mean, but I mean, you have to imagine that his life would have been pretty different. I would say. I mean, who knows all the things that could have could have arisen from that? But it's interesting how how his life does go another way. But and still, even within the world of philosophy, he is still a, a pretty big deal. Which which brings me to this major paper. Maybe you can. Tell me about this. I haven't read this paper, but he has this paper in the Philosophical Review in 1971 that everyone was talking about. Everyone was coming up to him and saying, this is amazing. So I haven't read it. I'm assuming you have um, or at least know about it. What what was the paper and what was it that made everyone just kind of like, wow, like just this is this is unparalleled. So he spends most of his life working on moral philosophy, mm-hmm. but the paper that you're talking about, which was the first published paper, was on something called personal identity. Mm-hmm. And that's the question of what it is that makes a person through time the same person. So what is it is that makes you the same person now than that you were when you were a baby and the same person now that you will be when you're... Um, 85. And and, and lots of philosophers had discussed this in the past. Lots of, you know, many members of the philosophical canon had discussed it. John Locke, uh, David Hume, and so on. Um, I mean, I think the reason uh, Parfit got interested in this was when when he was a Harkness fellow, between the two years, uh, so you do two years, and then there's a summer between the two years, and um, what they expected of you as a Harkness Fellow is, was that you would travel around America. So you were given the money to buy a car. And Harkness Fellows were supposed to see as much of America as they could. And I, I guess, although this wasn't stated, they were supposed to fall in love with America, as many of them did, and be American files for the rest of their life. And Parfit duly took his money, bought a car, and he had a girlfriend at the time, and he invited her to join him on his road trip across America. And she, his girlfriend, had a friend, a woman friend called Anne, who had a friend called David Wiggins, who Derek wouldn't have known from Adam. But David Wiggins was a philosopher who is still alive and is a very, very famous philosopher. And David Wiggins at that time was a very young philosopher writing about personal identity. So I think as they were traveling across America, going through New Mexico, and they, 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 they picked up David Wiggins in, in um, San Francisco, I think, then they went to L.A., um, and then they went across, and they ended up in, in, in Mexico itself, actually. They dumped the car. Um, they would have been talking about, I think, personal identity. David Wiggins doesn't remember this, but that, I think, is why Parfit ends up focusing initially on personal identity because he would have had these chats purely coincidentally with this bloke who happened to be in his car on his road trip around America. So he writes this famous paper and for many years he's invited all around the world to discuss personal identity and he jokes that 
and when he was introduced at, in front of these audiences, the chair would say, and this is Derek Parfit, who's written about personal identity and and then realised that they hadn't read anything that, else that Derek had written because he had written nothing else. He, he, <laughs> he, he, he became internationally famous in, in the small world of philosophy on the back of this personal identity paper. And he makes various um, claims in that paper. Um, later on, personal identity is the one area of philosophy that he slightly changes his mind about. Mm. But the core message which is there right from the beginning, is that identity, you know, what it is that makes me the same person, as I say, that I was 10 years ago and that will be in 10 years' time. Identity is not really a very important question. What's important is whether you continue to survive in a psychological way, whether there's psychological connectedness between me and a future self. So if there's a future self that has... Um, uh, my memories, my dispositions, my character and so on, that's what I should care about. Whether I call that the same identical to me or not is not really what matters. What I should care about is whether I've got a sort of future self that has this psychological connectedness with my current self. Hmm. So it's interesting. I, 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 when I was reading the, um, the book, I I I I was kind of laughing to myself because I've had two conversations uh more recently um about more so the self but um this very topic and they 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 they're on the podcast it's with um it's a professor out at Stanford um um the name will come to me in a minute um Brian Lowry and he teaches, he's a social psychologist by training. And we have this ongoing debate about the self. And my position is pretty similar here to, to what uh, Derek's is, is that we have, through time, a continuous self, right? Now, Brian's position is that the self is all socially constructed. It doesn't exist, right? It's all of it is socially constructed as we do it. So we could be anything that we want to be. And his claim is when you're talking about the self that's there through time, it's, you know, the person inside your head that's pulling the levers. There's a core self. And, and I don't believe that. I don't, I don't, I think the the self as somebody that's there uh, is a sort of illusion. Um, but I do think the things that we have, I think the psychological continuity is a good framing. That's what carries through. It has to. There are right. core elements of who we are. Right. If, if if all of that is too um, interchangeable, then there's nothing constant about what it makes me to be me. So, right. so, that, who, so that, that that was a Derek position. That was a Derek yeah. position. That, that, that we there's no essence of us. Mm -hmm. What we are is we're, we're a body and our mind. We're constantly evolving and changing. There's nothing that. It's sort of inside us, as it were, that makes me the same person. Um, so he, you know, you can contrast that position with a Christian belief in the mm -hmm. soul. Yeah. So if you're a Christian, you have a, a very straightforward answer to what it is that makes mm -hmm. 
me the same person. We've got the same soul. So mm. I don't know when the soul arrives. I don't know when in at conception or maybe does it arrive a few days after conception? I can't <laughs> remember. And the soul sort of right. goes <laughs> off somewhere into heaven or hell. I don't know what when you when, when there's biological death. But what makes me me is the soul. Mm. Well. Derek's a, obviously a secular thinker. He's he's given up religious belief. He doesn't believe in a soul. He doesn't think there's any reason to believe in a soul. There's no evidence for a soul. Um, so he looks for something else, and he says that he can't find anything else. So we we are, we are um, in a way that um, a football club is made up of its um, that there are kind of rules, and there are uh, there are the players, and there's the manager, and the coaches, and there's the stadium. And if you ask, yes, but what is it that makes that football club the same football club? All you have is no. It's that's what the football club is. It's made up of those bits and pieces. That's mm-hmm. what the football club is. What is a human being? That, that what is a? Um, I'm just you know, my my mind and my body, and that's it. There's no essence of me, mm-hmm. and that's very much in line with with. Um, the, the philosophy of David Hume, you know, who asks us to introspect and to look inside us and try and identify the self. And Hume says, no, when I look inside me, all I see is impressions. I see that I'm looking at my laptop at the moment. I'm seeing a a, a microphone and I'm seeing a strange picture on your behind your head. I don't know what it is. Um, I've got these various um, impressions. I don't see, I have no impression of the self that that I don't, that I don't perceive. Mm -hmm. Um, So in in that sense, his, um, his, his philosophy of personal identity is similar to some of the important philosophers of the past. He uses a number of interesting philosophical thought experiments to reach his conclusions. And that sort of is a mark of his originality. So he comes up with, ways of arguing for his position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I mean, that's a mark of his philosophy generally. He was very, very good at conjuring up sort of imaginary hypotheses mm-hmm. to test various theories and intuitions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I think it's I think it's important that we do have this idea of, you know, who, who we are uh, through time. And a lot of it is dependent on our, our, our memories. But... I, I I firmly believe I don't know how to completely explain it, but that there are things about us that are kind of constant. So who I am at five, I'm still that same person in some ways, in my view. And other people would say, no, you're always evolving and changing. And I agree with that as well. And I don't believe in a soul. I don't believe in a soul. So many people might see, see it that way. But I think that there there's certain... There's like a, it's like a building, uh, building a house. You have all of these things and like all of the bits and pieces are there to make it come together. But how would you be able to describe, well, I know this person, if you bump into a friend from, you know, primary school, right? Let's say, and you, you bump into them 30 years later, it's like, yeah, that I know that guy. Yeah. He's a, it's the same guy, right? Yeah. He's different. You know, his physical appearance is different. You know, maybe he's matured and he's grown and he has different ideas, but somewhere in there, it's the same person I knew when I was, you know, in first grade or second grade. So, so I think Derek doesn't want to say somewhere in there, but he does want to share. <laughs> he doesn't want to say somewhere in there is the same person, but he does want to share your intuition. I mean, when you see somebody who you haven't seen for 30 years, mm-hmm. you say, yeah, yeah. I mean, they lost all the hair or whatever, but, 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 <laughs> right. um, but I sort of recognize that person. What do you mean by that? You mean that 
if they were very kind of mean, they're still mean. If they were very generous, they were still... I mean, had they changed completely, you might say, oh, it just feels like a different person, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You wouldn't necessarily say <laughs> it's just, it, he feels like the same person. It's only, you only say, yeah, I, I, it's the same person because you see resemblances between that person much later on and the person mm-hmm. you knew much earlier on. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I think that's entirely consistent with with Derek's position about having no essence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would agree. So he, he gets to, uh, he has this one paper, and then he, he finally gets to writing reasons in persons. And you talk about in the book that it, it took a while and that it was a, a process for him. What, what, why was it, um, why was it so long for him to, to, to get to actually writing it and publishing it? And, and then maybe you could talk about some of the themes from that book in terms of, being impartial in our ethics and looking more on the common good than just ourselves or our family, which again are, are very interesting ideas. Um, yeah. So just tell us a little bit about the formation of that book and then some of the content there. Okay. Um, well, the book comes out in 1984. Derek becomes what's called a prize fellow at All Souls College, Oxford, in 1967. Um, All Souls College has a unique space in Oxford in that it's not true now, but it was true then and true for many years afterwards. It was the only place where it was just for researchers. There were no undergraduates um, it was just a research institution. And it was a very privileged place to be. And there was a lot of competition to get into All Souls. And one of Derek's few failures was he failed to get in there as a historian in 1964. And it's only when he applies as a philosopher later on, when he's now become fallen in love with philosophy, he tries again and he, he gets in on the second attempt in 1967. That gave him seven years to 1974. After that, he applied for another fellowship at All Souls, which gave him another seven years to 1981. Um, The second seven-year period was called a junior research fellowship. In 1981, he applies for what's called a senior research fellowship. Now, a senior research fellowship is basically a job for life. And had he got that, um, he would have been set up for life and... um, uh, and in fact, he did eventually get it. But at the time he applied in 1981, um, all the other fellows who vote on whether you should, who you should give the senior research fellowship to, um, they looked at his um, publishing record. I mean, I say all the other fellows. In fact, it was a it was, it was a very small minority of fellows who looked at his record and said, well, he's been there 14 years and he's had this extraordinarily privileged position of not having, you know, to, to, I mean, he, he did a bit of lecturing and so on, but he had virtually no obligations. And in 14 years, he hadn't produced a single book. And they said to Derek, and this came as a great shock to him because he thought he would just be automatically promoted, as it were, to senior research fellowship. They said to Derek, um, we're not going to give it to you. We'll agree a compromise. And the compromise is this. You have three years to publish a book. And if you come back with a book 
1984, we will reconsider your application for the Senior Research Fellowship, the job for life. Um, and if you haven't produced a book, we're going to throw you out of Oxford. <laughs> and so this was perhaps the biggest crisis in Derek's life. As I say, it took him, it blindsided him. So he has to produce a book in two years because it takes a year from time of handing in a manuscript to the time that a book appears. So Reasons and Persons, which is a very big book of whatever it is, 450 pages, um, is written in two years' time, uh, which is incredibly fast. And he, he almost kills himself. You know, he almost goes bonkers writing that book. He, he, he's working night and day writing that book. And it sets a pattern for the rest of his life where he becomes obsessive about his his work and his the time he will devote to other things or the lack of time he will devote to other things. So that's the history of the book. Um, well, there's a lot in it. I, I, I mean, perhaps I, I've already given a long answer. So perhaps, perhaps I shouldn't give a long answer about what's in the book, but it, it, it's, you can easily see it as four books. Mm. And when it came out, I think people, people wondered, well, what, what, why on earth have we got all these four big sections? So there's, there's one section asking basically why, whether we should be selfish or whether we should be moral. Um, the, the third section we've already discussed a bit, which is about personal identity. Mm -hmm. And the fourth big section is on future people. Mm -hmm. Obligations to people who are not yet born. Mm -hmm. Our responsibilities to people who will exist but don't yet exist. And Derek basically invents that subgenre of moral philosophy. It doesn't exist before Derek, all the puzzles that we still have about how much we should care about future people, these are all puzzles and conundrums that were, uh, were established by Derek. Mm. Um, and people ask, well, you know, what do all these sections have in common? Mm. Well, they are, as you say, they're sort of broadly consequentialist in, or impartial in that his conclusions for most of his arguments are that we should care about people in general rather than particular people. We should care about maximizing well-being generally rather than, you know, caring particularly about myself or about my friends and family. So he's a kind of you know, a consequentialist or, you know, he's got utilitarian instincts. Um, but in other ways, they've got little in common. And the reason that they're all there together is that Derek was working on multiple books and when all souls say to him, you've got to produce one book, what he does is he just throws them all into that hat, as it were. He, 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 there's a front cover and a back cover, and he throws all his other ideas in, in between these two covers. And they end up not being four books, but being one book. And so people, I think when the book came out, didn't realize that mm. that was the origin of the book. Mm. And, you know, now we know the history of it and the origin of it. We understand why these apparently very disparate ideas are all thrown together in this one extremely rich, powerful, dense book, Reasons and Persons. Mm. Yeah, that's, I, I like the way you describe it. It's, uh, I think, and I think that's helpful for people to kind of conceptualize that way. I want to ask about this utilitarianism. So there's there's a there's a there's one piece in the book I'll, I'll read it it's 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 interesting it's interesting people get a taste of this so <clears throat> you get this example so it says that the most extreme indeed shocking example of Parfit's instincts on dessert concerns a film about Adolf Hitler just as Parfit believed that the world could in no way be better if someone was unhappy or made to suffer 
So he also believed the converse, that every bit of happiness should be welcomed. All other things being equal, it was better that a person be happy, even a person who had committed bad acts, than that they be unhappy. He once saw footage of Hitler performing a little jig, celebrating the French surrender to Germany in 1940. Uh, in fact, Parfit didn't know this. The film had been doctored and was an early example of fake news. What was Parfit's reaction to Hitler's jig? At least something good came out of a German victory. Now, how does this square? This is an example. It's a, it's a kind of amusing example of sorts. But how, how, how does this factor into being utilitarian, right? That somebody, even the worst people, if they're happy, they, if there's a moment of that, they accept it as, as having that. What was he trying to find? I guess, how does that fit in within a utilitarian argument? Let me ask it that way. Well, I'm glad you picked up on that example because I only put it in the book because I couldn't believe it when I came across <laughs> this <laughs> example. It's, it's so extraordinary. And, it, it you know, and who else would have that reaction? You know, that is such a bizarre reaction to yes, what he'd is. just seen. Yes. Um, and from a utilitarian point of view, one ought to say that mostly <laughs> um, we don't want bad people to be happy because if bad people, if, you know, if that sets a bad example. You know, if we look around us and see that bad people are generally happy, well, that might encourage us to be bad, right? I mean, on, on the whole, <laughs> we don't want uh, bad people to enjoy the suffering of others. That's a, that's a terrible um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, solution from a utilitarian point of view that that's going to encourage all the wrong kind of dispositions and actions so a utilitarian generally as a rule doesn't want people like hitler to be um, uh, to to have a great deal of um, satisfaction from the suffering of other people so um, when derek is looking at adolf being doing his adolf hitler doing his little jig and saying at least something good came out of the invasion of uh, 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 Czechoslovakia. Um, he's, he's assuming a, a, a sort of subclause, which is all other things being equal, mm. all other things being equal. So that's very important. So mm-hmm. if everything else was equal, if, if, if the world was unchanged, apart from whether Hitler was happy or whether Hitler was unhappy, then, according to Derek it's better if Hitler's happy. Nothing good comes from the suffering of a person, however bad they are. Of course, as I said, in the actual world, the world is not like that. In the actual world, you don't want bad people to be happy. But in that particular case, if it changes nothing else, if Hitler's happiness affects nothing else, it's better that he's happy than he's not happy. And um, it's related but not identical to Derek's view about, you, you mentioned dessert, which, mm-hmm. and by dessert we don't mean mm-hmm. chocolate brownies, we mean moral mm-hmm. dessert. Right. Um, uh, so Derek is what in the philosophical literature is is a, called a determinist. Mm-hmm. So Derek believes that the idea of free will mm-hmm. makes no real sense. That um, just as if you roll a billiard ball and hit another billiard ball, it will go off in a, the second billiard ball will go off in a different direction according to the speed and the angle of the first ball and so on. Um, That's all determined by physics, the laws of physics. So, you know, human beings are made up of 
molecules and atoms and so on, we're no more, we're just as much part of the determinist world, the deterministic world as, as billiard balls. We're no freer than billiard balls in Derek's view. And, you know, the, the, the question of free will is a, is a question that still um, divides philosophers. But, he, but that was Derek's position. He didn't believe in free will. If you don't believe in free will, if you think that ultimately everything that you and I do is determined by pre-existing causes, then you can find no room for moral responsibility. Because if I, you know, um, set light to somebody's house, I'm an arsonist, and, you know, I, I cause in terrible property damage and maybe um, cause humans to kind of physically suffer. If I've been caused to do that, um, in the same way as if somebody held a gun to my head and said, you have to do that. If I've been caused to do that by you know, all the things that led up to that, my decision to, to burn that house down, um, I'm not morally responsible for it in any deep sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Derek's view was that um, there's no such thing as sort of deep moral responsibility. Uh, I mean, at, the, at, at one level, we can say, well, of course, you're responsible because you're the one who lit the match. But in the terms of moral responsibility, deep moral responsibility, you're not responsible because you were determined to do it by all those pre-existing conditions. So he didn't think anybody deserved to suffer equally, although he talks much less about this. The reverse of that is if nobody deserves anything bad to happen to them nobody deserves any praise so you don't you shouldn't praise any kind of hero or nobel prize winner because what they've done is equally determined by pre-existing causes so he didn't believe in in desert but in any case even if he had done i think from his utilitarian perspective he would have thought that um Retribution can't be justified. So retribution is the idea that if I've done something bad, I deserve to be punished. Um, Whether or not that punishment acts as a deterrent to other people, whether or not that punishment prevents me from doing further bad things in the past, retribution is the idea that I simply deserve it because I've done something bad. Now, Parfit thought that was a ridiculous view to have about the world, that um, there may be very good reasons to punish people, but they were utilitarian reasons. Mm-hmm. So, I would, I, again, I should, I, I, it makes perfect sense to threaten to punish people if they commit crimes because you don't want people to commit crimes and punishment will act as a deterrent. And if somebody is a homicidal murderer, it makes perfect sense to lock that person up because if you don't lock that person up, the homicidal murderer will go and murder other people. So there are very good reasons from a utilitarian point of view to have the practice and the institutions of punishment. But it isn't a good argument to say the person we're punishing deserves punishment, it's a good thing that that person suffers, irrespective of whether it has any utilitarian consequences. And that that was what he rejected. So anything bad that happens to the world that doesn't have any good consequences is to be abhorred or, or um, uh, and we should do something, you know, we should try not to get into that position. We shouldn't encourage any suffering if it's going to have no good effects. And likewise, every bit of goodness 
is better than no bit of goodness, all other things being equal. So to get back to the Hitler example, Mm -hmm. it's better Hitler is happy rather than Hitler's unhappy, so long as it has no other sort of bad effects. It's better that somebody's happy than they're unhappy. Isn't part of the the debate here, though, also about the impact that it has on other people? So some people may say, well, if somebody sees somebody getting away with something, they're more likely to do that as well. They're yeah, going to so, also yeah, do that. Yeah, but other so, people will say, no, that's not true. That's not quite how it works. Well, so so there we're just left with an empirical debate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I don't suppose Parfit has got any, he's a philosopher. I don't suppose he's got anything interesting to say about that question. I mean, to answer that question, you, you need a sociologist or criminologist to say whether deterrence actually works. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, if, if Derek would say, well, if it doesn't work, um, then we shouldn't use it. And if it does work, then we've got a rationale to use it. And, mm-hmm. um, and as I say, if, if other people are inspired by people's, by people getting away with crimes or by people being joyful or flourishing on the back of doing bad things, and that encourages them. Well, that's a very good reason from a utilitarian consequentialist point of view mm-hmm. to discourage it and to make sure that, that those are not seen as good examples. But mm-hmm. whether or not they are becomes an, an empirical matter that Derek has nothing to say about. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I also think that there's an aspect of scale here as well. You know, if it's a one-to-one kind of thing, you know, maybe that's more, there's more variance there. But when you have, you know, massive amounts of people observing or seeing this, and it's at scale, I would agree that there should be deterrence for for for, for certain. So I want to ask about um, two, 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 these are two separate things, but um, I'll just pitch them and you can answer them uh, uh, accordingly. He has this idea of a non-identity problem, which I thought was interesting. And I was also curious for um, what you think his views on equality were. So these are two separate issues, but um, you can just take the first one. This non-identity problem, uh, how does that maybe fit with what we were talking about earlier with with kind of personal uh, identity? And then, and then his views on equality. So the non-identity problem is only very loosely connected um, to his ideas on personal identity. Um, he does it with... Um, this example but you can you can imagine i mean there there are there are tropical diseases that um exist to this day and um you know the 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 foreign office i don't know if the, the state department has the same advice but the foreign office might say if you go to these various countries that don't have the that have these tropical diseases when you come back advice to women and potential fathers try not to get pregnant within the next three months. Because if you do and you have this disease, you're likely to end up with a, a, a baby that might have severe disabilities. We have, we have something like that on the State Department website, all the countries, and there's like a tier system of here's the warning signs and what could happen. And there's something similar to that, I think. Right, right. So um, obviously we're, we're, we're subjected to the same diseases. Um, uh, so, but, 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 but I'll tell you the example Derek uses. So he, he imagines a, a, a 14-year-old girl who's going to think about having a baby and um, the option is that the 14-year-old girl, what you want to persuade the 14-year-old girl to do is postpone the decision to have a baby until 
she's a mature woman um, because you because partly because it was it, it's good for the it's not good for the girl to have a baby at age fourteen, but also there's this powerful intuition that it's not good for the baby. Mm. That if the baby is born to a fourteen year old child, that is a very bad start in life. Mm. Um, and Derek spots something which is extremely obvious, but it took. Derek to spot it. Nobody else had seen that. It took uh, Derek spotted something extremely obvious, which is well, if the child, uh, the fourteen-year-old girl, postpones having the baby, then the baby that will be born three or four months later, or uh, sorry, uh, ten years later, whenever the the, the 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 girl decides to have a baby, won't be the same child. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we were talking about the tropical diseases. Let's say you've gone to a a country with a tropical disease, you come back, you decide not to have, not to try and get pregnant because you're worried that you may have this disease possibly, in which case you'll get a severely disabled child. You decide to postpone um, having a baby or conception for another few months. Again, if you do that, the child that will eventually be born is obviously not going to be the same child as the child that would have been born if you got pregnant immediately after coming back from the from the tropical country. Now, why is this interesting? Normally, when we think about morality, we think that something is good or bad because it's good or bad for particular people. So um, if I, um, I, I get set light to a house, uh, I'm, in, I'm in an arsonist mood today. If I set light to a house, <laughs> then... Um, the reason it's bad is because I've affected somebody's property or mm-hmm. because I've put somebody's life at risk. There's a particular person who's affected or particular people who've affected, who are affected. What Derek spotted is that there are things that seem to be bad, which aren't bad for any individual people. So to go back to the example of the, of the girl who's thinking of having a, a child aged 14, um, were she to go ahead and have that child – the child would not have a great start in life, but presumably the child would have a life that was better than nothing. And um, by postponing having a child, you haven't helped the child that would have been born by the 14-year-old because that child would not have existed. Okay, so um, there isn't a single person who has been harmed by the decision by the the 14-year-old girl to have the child. She hasn't harmed her child because although her child doesn't have a a great start in life, the child is born and the life is better than nothing. And had she not taken the decision to have the child then and done the sensible thing and postponed her decision, a different child would have existed. Um, So if she goes ahead and has the child, we think that she's done something silly and and something wrong maybe, but she hasn't affected badly any particular person. Hmm. And Derek notices that a lot of moral problems have that structure. So the one he talks about is climate change, and he imagines that we take some drastic action about climate change. For example, we ban the use of cars or ban planes. Well, if you do something drastic like that, you're going to affect who's born, Mm. okay? Because, I mean, uh, as he puts it, try and imagine you being born without the invention of the train. Um, uh, 
we, all of us are the product of a particular sperm meeting a particular egg at a moment in time. Mm. And if we change the world by banning cars or banning planes, we're going to affect <laughs> who gets created, okay? Different people are going to end up in the world. Mm. Um, so if you imagine two possible scenarios, in one scenario, we do nothing about climate change, and three or four generations down the line, we end up with a group of people who've got very miserable lives because, I mean, their lives are still better than nothing, but they're, you know, they're, they're faced with all sorts of catastrophes and problems and there's, there's drought and there are floods and so on because um, we haven't looked after planet Earth. Um, and the alternative scenario is that we do something and three or four generations down the line, we have a set of people um, and their lives are much better than that. Their lives are much more flourishing than that, and they don't face those same sorts of problems. But um, if we opt for the first option and do nothing about climate change, we're not harming any particular people. Because had we done something drastic about climate change, a whole different set of people would mm. exist. Mm. So it's a puzzle about how we think about morality. And he says, well, you can't say that doing nothing about climate change is bad because it's bad for any particular person. It's not because three or four generations down the line, they're, they're, there's going to be a completely different set of people existing on the, on the planet. What you, what you have to say is, given the choice between, let's say, three or four generations down the line, there being eight billion very kind of contented, flourishing lives – and another option where the eight, where three or four generations down the line, there are eight billion people, completely different people, whose lives are much less flourishing because they're faced with all the problems that climate change throws up. We should produce, prefer that, the first option, to the second. So, obviously, given the choice between two sets of lives, one of which are flourishing, one of which are much less flourishing, we should prefer the flourishing lives, but not because it's better for any particular person, just because we're comparing two different sets of human beings. That was a very long-winded way of explaining. No, no, that. no, no. It's, it's it's great. It's great. It's it's something I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna listen back to this and I'm really gonna think about that because I think it's a I don't think it's something that people think about on a regular basis, but I think it's something that we all interact with. I should say, um, whether we realize it or not, which is really really interesting to think about ideas of this future people, right? Uh, and what that's like, and it's it's interesting. It's very very interesting. I, 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 I didn't answer the second part of your question, so let, yeah, let, me, just, yeah. let me just tell you a, a very little bit about equality. So mm. um, he only writes one paper on equality. Um, he gives a talk in Kansas, actually, and uh, he then turns that into a paper. And it's a very interesting paper. And the basic claim in the paper is that um, if you have – well, most of us think that equality is of value in and of itself – you know, even if we're conservative, we might think, well, um, equality, given the choice between a more equal and a less equal world, other things being equal, <laughs> the more equal world is better. And then, depending on where you are on the political spectrum, the value of equality seems to take on greater pertinence. So, a socialist or a kind of communist going even further left might think it's the dominant value. The equality is, is, is really what, what matters. And Derek's very sim simple point is to claim that equality per se 
can't be of value. And he and he talks about that with reference to what he calls the leveling down argument. So if you imagine that um, you're on one side of the world, let's, let's say you're in um, a place called Baltimore, America, and let's say I'm in a place called London, UK, and let's say it's before there's any transport. We don't know. We don't know each other exists. Okay, um, and let's say you have a life that we value on some kind of scale of flourishing of 100. And let's say here in London, I have a life of only 70. Now, if equality per se is a value. Um, we don't know about each other, so I'm not jealous of you. I don't know that you've got a much better life than me. Um, but if equality per se is a value, then if I reduce your quality of life from 100 down to 70 so that it's the same as my quality of life, if equality per se is a value, then in one way we've made the universe better by bringing you down to my level so that we're both now um, – at the level of 70. And he says, that can't be right. You know, mm. I've made you, I've made your life less flourishing, more miserable. Mm. Um, and I've done nothing to my life. I haven't improved my life anymore. And, you know, I'm, I don't know about you, your existence. So I'm, 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 I, I, it doesn't affect my status or my, or envy or jealousy or anything like that. All I've done is reduce your quality of life to make the universe more equal. Well, that according to Derek, has done nothing of value to the universe. You've, 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 equality per se can't be um, of value. Insofar as equality matters, it must matter for other reasons. So that's his basic argument about equality. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's. I've been thinking about that a lot recently because it, you know, it gets talked about a lot and and various things. And well, this is equality is a right and one of these things. And and I I I always. Well, Kind of first, what is what do we mean when we say equality? What, how does that look? How does that present itself? And I think those are questions people should think about deeply, as opposed to just you know spewing off all these like words that we you know have as favorites for us. And I again, I'm that's not to say I'm against equality necessarily or in certain circumstances. <laughs> I think we should you know as humans, uh, but uh, I think we should have equality. But there is, I think, uh, it's complicated. I think uh, like many constructs are. So the last two questions here, <clears throat> you talk about, uh, you know, his his time between 2003 and 2010 is, you know, relatively uneventful, at least on a public uh, framework. And I'm assuming a lot of this stuff is on, you know, his time is 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 getting on what matters uh, completed. Again, it's massive. So you had to write it at some point. Um, so just tell us a little bit about. He finishes on what matters. Did he want it to be that big? What was he trying to say with such a all these big volumes? And then, um, and then the legacy of Parfit. How can we get more people to know about him and his work and to to really understand him uh, for who he is? Yeah. So he, he comes to believe that if morality is not objective. Um, then his life is meaningless and all our lives are meaningless. And so um, he wants to argue that um, morality, there are facts about morality. I mean, not quite in the same way as there are facts about the natural world, but nonetheless, there are things about which it's possible to say, to be, say, uh, one 
proposition about morality is right and one is wrong, that we have reasons to do things and to behave in certain ways, irrespective of whether we want to behave in certain ways, that morality has this objective basis. And he didn't want to work on this in his early part of his career because he thought the question was just too difficult. Mm. Uh, And then in the last 20 years of his life, it's the question that preoccupies him. And he spends all his waking hours thinking about it. And uh, he wants to convince all the major opponents that he has around the world that he's right. So one reason the book gets bigger and bigger is that he sends out drafts of the book Mm. and there are objections to it. And he responds to the objections and send it back. And then there's more objections. He responds to that. He wants to respond to every single objection in the book because he wants to prove that he's thought of everything. Um, So the major project is to prove that morality is objective. The subsidiary project, which is linked to that, is to show that (coughs) all the traditions, the major traditions of moral philosophy, and in particular he talks about consequentialism, of which utilitarianism is a part, Kantianism and contractualism, that these three strands of moral philosophy are not nearly as... Um, distinct as people believe or had believed that they were. And his metaphor for that is that moral philosophers are climbing uh, the mountain from different sides. Mm. So the Kantian is climbing from one side and the consequentialist from another and the contractualist from another, and they meet at the top of the summit. Mm. And they, they see from the summit that they that they share all these things in common. So that's those are the two twin projects of this massive, massive book of 1900 pages. His, his legacy, um, well, he only died in 2017. So um, as whoever it was said about the French Revolution, you know, it's, it's, it's too early to, to tell. Who knows what his legacy is? He divides philosophers with some philosophers just don't like the ways he does philosophy, but there were many, many serious philosophers who regard him as one of the great moral philosophers of the 20th century. Some go even further and say he's the most important moral philosopher since Sidgwick or since John Stuart Mill. And I think we'll see that sort of, um, you know, we'll have a better, be able to judge, I think, in, in 10, 15, 20 years time. I think Reasons and Persons is a very great book, which will be read in decades to come. And some of his ideas about future people, I think, are beginning to work their way into policy. So mm. I think although he wasn't a a, um, a public philosopher and didn't, to go back from right to where we started, didn't engage with the public, I think he'll end up influencing the public. Mm. Yeah, I think that's important because we need to know we need to have better ways or better kind of roadmap or template of how to understand the hard problems of morality, especially as we have a future that, you know, comes closer and closer to us. And I think a lot of his work is, is, you know, is, is tremendous. And and as you're saying, we're still kind of close to it. We're going to be doing his homework of sorts for, you know, in the next 25, 50 years, which is very interesting. Um, well, the book is called Parfit, a uh, philosopher and his mission to save morality. Uh, it's out everywhere through Princeton. It's fabulous. Uh, David, 
thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and 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 talking about Derek's life and and just explain everything. You're you're. I can tell you're you're used to this podcast life. I can tell. So you know, I I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on here and uh, and sharing all the wonderful wisdom that you have. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs>